Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Hello everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 181. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talking tutors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor themed goodies, you'll have access to patron only monthly giveaways. November's prize is a copy of Adrian Dillard's latest novel, Keeper of the Queen's Jewels, a novel of Jane Seymour. Thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. This weekend, I'll be chatting to Philippa Lacey Brule from British History Tours about Tudor historic sites. Please check Patreon for all the details. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to discuss Anne Boleyn's Ladies in Waiting is Sylvia Barbara Soberton. Sylvia is a writer, historian, and researcher specializing in the history of the Tudors. She debuted in 2015 with her best-selling book, The Forgotten Tudor Women, Mary Howard, Mary Shelton, and Margaret Douglas. Sylvia's other bestsellers include Golden Age Ladies, Women Who Shaped the Courts of Henry VIII and Francis I, Great Ladies, The Forgotten Witnesses to the Lives of the Tudor Queens, The Forgotten Tudor Women, Anne Seymour, Jane Dudley, and Elizabeth Parr, and others. Our conversation is coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to Talking Tudors, Sylvia. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yes, it's so lovely to talk to you. So let's start with an introduction. If you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background. So my name is Sylvia Barbara Soberton. I'm an author, historian, researcher specializing in the Tudor period. I wrote several books about the Tudors, especially about the Tudor women. My debut series of books was um, The Forgotten Tudor Women. There are three volumes in that series. Um, My most recent one is about the ambulance ladies-in-waiting. I wrote also about medical downfall of the Tudors and golden age ladies. So I'm concentrating mostly on women. Fantastic. And we are actually here to talk about your latest book, which is very exciting. So Ladies in Waiting, Women Who Served Anne Boleyn. So why did you feel that you wanted to to really narrow in and focus on this particular subject? Well, the aspects of Anne Boleyn's life and death are fiercely debated by historians, but we usually tend to concentrate on her relationships with men. So with Henry VIII, with her suitors, with her brother, father, with the putative lovers who were executed on 17 May of 1536. And her ladies-in-waiting remain kind of an understudied, understudied area. So I wanted to concentrate on that because I knew there is a lot of material to explore and that answer story may sound a little bit different when you look at it through the eyes of women. So that was my focus because I primarily work on women's lives. So I was very excited to explore this avenue of research. Excellent. Yes, I think it's always good when you sort of look at these well-known stories through a different lens. Exactly. I think so that's yes. that's wonderful. So before we actually dive in to look more specifically at Anne Boleyn's Ladies in Waitings, could you tell us a little bit just about a lady in waiting and how, you know, how does this happen in the 16th century? How do you become one? Also, women started their careers um, as maids of honor. So they were unmarried, usually in their teens, daughters of aristocrats, usually their fathers, brothers, grandfathers even served at court already. So they were introduced by family connections, uh, like it was, for example, the case with Mary Howard, Anne Boleyn's first cousin. Uh, She started serving Anne when she was actually 12, so very, very young. So usually the queen and her lord chancellor picked the ladies. The king sometimes interfered also uh, whether he would do this um, on his own volition or whether he was asked to be consulted, you know. And physical appearance played a major part in selecting the ladies because they not only serve, but they were like kind of a decorative ornament to court. So first thing you saw were the ladies of the queen and they had to look presentable. Uh, so yes, good looks was very important. I would say that's like the first thing, the first criteria that a woman was judged. And in terms of some of the other skills that these women were, yeah. hope, you know, hopefully should possess at the time. Can you talk to us a little bit about those particular skills? Mm-hmm. Well, so among the basic skills, of course, reading and writing, sewing, embroidering, because that's what the women did behind closed doors. Also, singing, dancing, playing on instruments. For example, Henry Reed's first recorded mistress, Bessie Blount, who served as Catherine of Aragon's maid of honor was said to have you know excelled all other women in singing dancing and in all pastimes and henry did he fancied himself 
a little bit of a musician, poet, and he paid attention to women with similar skills. Also, when, when you think about Anne Boleyn, she was said to have had a good singing voice and accompany herself on the lute and on other instruments as well. Also, because they would sing to the queen also, you know, reading, singing to her, all sorts of stuff. And also the language was very important. So the, cult, the cultured people at court spoke French and it was very important when during occasions of state when women would talk to foreign ambassadors so usually in French Anne Boleyn spoke very good French she was excellent and just in general terms French was very very important so you know good looks education a bit of domestic skills a a mix a little bit (laughs) yes yeah they were very talented women weren't they it's incredible the things they could do do everything (laughs) you know we tend to I tend to think about them as the silent witnesses to the lives of Tudor queens, but they were not so silent, you know, because they had to, um, they observed, you know, from the sidelines, but they also kind of, some of them were powerful players. So, um, yes, thank you. Definitely. So we've talked a little bit about the skills required, but can you tell us a little bit more about Maybe like what what did a day in the life kind of involve and what duties are they are they there to specifically perform? You've touched on a couple, but maybe we can go into this a little bit deeper. Okay, so when it comes to the groups of servants in the Queen's Privy Chamber, we would have um, chamberers, ladies-in-waiting and maids of honour. So chamberers did this kind of menial, menial tasks like emptying chamber pots in the morning or plumping the pillows, preparing the bed for the night, Uh, sweeping the chamber so they were clean and refreshed. And then ladies-in-waiting and maids of honor came more into a very personal contact with the queen. And that was a very prestigious post, more so than a chamberer. Chamberer was more of a, you know, menial servant, but close to the queen as well. So ladies-in-waiting had all sorts of duties. First, when the queen woke up, they had to dress her. They had to comb her hair, prepare her for the day. They served her during the meals. For example, there there was this ceremonial role of carver, the queen's carver. She, so she carved her meat and you know gave her on a on a platter so that she chose whatever she wanted. What else? Well, they they would read to her. They would accompany her wherever she went uh, so for example if, if the queen goes to the chapel even if she's going to her own private chapel then, then she's accompanied by women so she's never alone basically even at night there is a pallet bed reserved for a lady in waiting the queen's so-called bedfellow so that she would sleep with her and tend to her every beck and call even at night so it was not a solitary existence privacy was a rare commodity later in elizabeth's reign elizabeth would complain that a thousand eyes see what i do and also you know thinking about the accusations of Boleyn, you know adultery and all that you know how could she have committed those if she was, if she was surrounded by women on a daily basis, every every hour of her day, never alone. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it, with our notion of privacy and how special that is oh, yeah. to us <laughs> to think yes. of being in contact with someone the whole, you know, 24 hours a day is quite awful to me. I love oh. spending time alone. So. <laughs> yeah, and even in your own bedchamber, oh. you can't be alone. <laughs> no, no, it is. Yeah, it's quite something, isn't it? So let's let's focus on, on Anne Boleyn for the, the rest of the, the conversation. So can you tell us about some of the ladies who became close to Anne as her star is sort of rising, you know, in the late 50s? 
1520s and the early 30s. Mm -hmm. Who are those women that, that kind of stand out or stood out to you in your research? Okay, so in July of 1531, Anne Boleyn was under impression that she would be married to the king within three or maybe four months. And so she started appointing her royal household. And before that, we don't really have any good indication of who served her. But after 1531, it becomes very, very, very clear who served her. So in 1531, 32, during that festive season, Catherine of Aragon was not at court because she was banished. She still had her own royal household with about 50 maids of honor serving her. But it was remarked that Anne Boleyn had her own ladies-in-waiting and that she was served by almost as many ladies as if she were queen. And the first hint of Anne's elevated status is in the list of New Year's uh, gifts in 1531, when Henry VIII gave gifts to five ladies who were said to have been with the Lady Anne. And I assume these ladies were very close to her because some of them went on to transfer to her royal household. And so these ladies were Anne Savage, Anne Jocelyn, Marjorie Horseman, Jane Ashley, and Risley. I only couldn't identify the Risley girl, and the others are well known, and they do appear in Anne's later story. So Savage, Jocelyn, Horseman, and Ashley, they would serve Anne when she became queen. Um, so for example, Anne Savage, she was present during Anne's secret wedding to the king on 25th of January, 1533. So I assume they would have been very close. But sadly for us, Anne Savage married. She, uh, she married in April, of 1533. She was present during Anne's coronation, but she withdrew from court later. So we don't hear about her all that much later on. So, you know, that was also the path of many women who first served at court as young women. And then when they uh, married, they went on to, you know, raise their own children, run their own households, you know, be great ladies of their own homes. So when Anne Boleyn was selecting the women who, who would serve her, she, she was influenced by close relationships that she had with them. So in the first place, she would have been served by women of her own family. So we have Jane Boleyn, Viscountess Rochford. Uh, Anne Boleyn's mother sometimes appeared as Anne's lady slash chaperone, uh, but I wouldn't expect her to have served her daughter as a lady-in-waiting, you know, as like we think about other women who would serve Anne daily. So more of a ceremonial role. Then Mary Carey, Anne Boleyn's sister, Elizabeth Somerset, Countess of Worcester. She would play a role later on when Anne would be arrested. Mary Howard, was also very prominent in Anne's story before Anne became queen. So you can actually trace Mary Howard's role as Anne's first maid of honor and then lady-in-waiting from the very early on. For example, she appears first at court in 1532 when Anne is elevated to the status of Marchioness of Pembroke and Mary Howard is only 12, so very, very young. And later on, when after Anne's death, Mary Howard was the informant of John Fox, who said that she was chief of the maids of honor at Anne's court in her household. And she was his informant, so she was in a position to know a lot of things about Anne and her habit, what, you know, her faith, you know, just a domestic life at 
at court and in the household. And also, I would say that Marjorie Horseman was also very close to Anne before Anne became queen and later on also after Anne, be, after Anne became queen in 1533. Marjorie is this kind of woman who appears all the time in the court record. Um, she she was approached also by, for example, Honor Lyle, who wanted to place her two daughters at court in Anne's household. And so I, w- I think that Marjorie Horseman, that she was very, very close to Anne because when... Again, there's evidence from later on that when there were these investigations and questionings during Anne's downfall, um, that Marjorie didn't really want to say much because there was this great friendship between her and Anne. So I think they were very close. And also just because other people approached her on a daily basis, so they had to know that she was close to the Queen. Yeah, it's very interesting also to to note that you've pointed out those familial ties and how important they were because we do see this repeated, don't we, through all the the sort of queens that we look at. Elizabeth of York did the same thing, surrounded herself with family. Mm -hmm. We see Elizabeth do it later on, of course, with her Berlin relatives. And and it must have given them a sense of, you know, security perhaps that perhaps Mm -hmm. you can trust these people a little more. I don't know. Yes. And also, you know, Anne, if she were a, a foreign princess, she would have she would have come with her own household and you know all sorts of people but she was you know English so she didn't have foreign connections and so she had to surround herself with her you know with her with her own people yes I think she would have thought you know that they were not very likely to betray her so she had that security in being surrounded by family but as you know it's not always (laughs) didn't always go as plan you know relatives banished here and there so yeah exactly (laughs) about her sister sister sister-in-law absolutely they're all very complex relationships aren't they especially when you're having a relationship with the queen it's a very kind of complicated situation isn't it so you've spoken you've mentioned that four of of the women that obviously served down in the earlier days then go on to serve her in her royal household so can you tell us a little bit more about some of the those women or the other women that were appointed when she becomes queen in 1533 well so out of the 31 women who appear on the coronation list in 1533, 16 were related to Anne uh, by blood or by marriage to the male members of her family. So we have, for example, Jane Boleyn, Anne's sister-in-law, Mary Carey, her sister, uh, Mary Howard, of course, Mary Shelton. And here, Mary Shelton served her as maid of honor because she was unmarried and young, probably in her early 20s. And, you know, Mary Shelton is somebody who also appears quite often in accounts of Anne's life. She was contributing a lot to the Devonshire manuscript, so she was a poet. She was also briefly, briefly Henry VIII's mistress. And there's this uh, view among historians that perhaps Anne introduced Mary Shelton to Henry VIII's bed, some somewhat, you know, gave her permission to become the mistress because she was trustworthy and member of the family. But I found no evidence that that was the case. I think because there is this uh, account of how Anne's chaplain, William Latimer, said that Anne rebuked Mary Shelton for scribbling, you know, idle poesies in her prayer book. So I don't think that she would have been like, oh yes, go on and (laughs) (laughs) I give you my permission. No, I don't think think that was the case because Anne's uh, security depended on her relationship with the king. She had to have that close, intimate relationship with him. So not only, you know, intellectually connecting, but also, you know, intimately connecting. So if a woman supplants her in bed, 
head of the king, then she's, you know, she's supplanted. Mm -hmm. And that, that really happened, you know, so she was right to be suspicious about other women. And she was right to, you know, kind of guard her place so, so fiercely as she did. Um, so when it comes to maids of honor, there were six maids in Anne's, in Anne's household. So there was Mary Zouche, Marjorie Horseman, Mary Shelton, Margaret Gamage, Elizabeth Holland, and Jane Ashley. And many of these women, women would, they would marry at some point and become ladies in waiting, but most of them were unmarried as maid. And uh, so, for example, Mary Marjorie Hoffman, she would marry in January of 1537 and become lady in waiting, but to another queen, so to Jane Seymour. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to me to think about that many of those women would have been still alive and around when Elizabeth became mm -hmm. queen. I think that's not something that is talked very often because we concentrate on Elizabeth's memories of Anne and how she perhaps didn't have a lot of them, but there were people at court yeah. who remembered Anne. So that's really kind of fascinating to think about that, you know, if she wanted to, she could have approached someone and asked about her mother. And I'm wondering if that was something that the ladies-in-waiting of her mother would, you know, be like, oh, I remember your mother doing this or that. Or would they be just, you know, like Anne Boleyn doesn't exist because she was executed. Interesting to ponder. <laughs> it is <laughs> very interesting questions. to ponder. I totally agree with you. I think yeah. she had access to lots of sources of information about her mother mm -hmm. and although we don't have it recorded that she inquired, I, uh, my gut feeling says she definitely did, but um, mm -hmm. privately, obviously. Yeah, and it's very interesting what you were saying about Anne Boleyn and, of course, her need to maintain that intimacy and closeness with the king, and it just mm -hmm. reminded me of something that the wonderful late Professor Eric Ives said mm -hmm. when he was talking about Anne, Anne transitioning from, obviously, Henry's mistress to his mm -hmm. queen, that she was in that very awkward and very difficult position of having to behave like his wife and a queen, but having to, and these are Eric Ives' words, having to continue to challenge like mm -hmm. a mistress. So I think that yes. was a very difficult road to travel and to, and to manage really, wasn't it? Yes, that was definitely very, very difficult for her. Yeah, yeah because, but... you know, she, she, she had to have that, you know, she had to guard that personal relationship. And there were a lot of women at court who were beautiful, talented as well. And so just imagine having to watch... Henry dallying with those women. There's this very interesting account. I'm sure you've 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 read that that when Anne was seated beside the French admiral Gontier, you know, she was like watching the king who was supposed to introduce someone to the oh, admiral, yes, yes. and he started to dally with this lady, and she's like burst into this fit of laughter and the admiral you know are you laughing at me madame so oh yes it almost caused that. a diplomatic almost. um nightmare didn't it yeah. and she was in fact <laughs> yeah. she was just nervously so it laughing just at shows you how how you know how how frayed her nerves must have been yes absolutely. it wasn't very very easy role to be to be queen to be Anne Boleyn you know because she set a precedent you know former maid of honor of the queens so Let's talk a little bit more about her relationship with these women. When you mm. were doing your research, did you find any sort of interesting bits of information to do with how she treated her women or what the relationship was mm -hmm. like? So I feel like Anne Boleyn was a good mistress to have to serve because she lent books and money to her ladies-in-waiting. She took care also of their spiritual needs by, of course, encouraging them to read the Bible in English. She had that 
Bible in her own privy chamber, uh, laid out on a desk. She tried to keep a high moral standard among her women as well. And also when she was arrested in the beginning of May of 1536, she said that the Countess of Worcester's baby didn't move in her belly. So uh, that's an indication of how close she was with her ladies, you know, talking about these very private matters like pregnancy. And, in, you know, interestingly, the Countess of Worcester would be the one who, who was said to have been Anne first accuser. So perhaps in a, you know, knowing a lot of secrets, private matters that Anne talked about behind the closed doors. And also when Anne lost her own child, when she miscarried in January of 1536, there's this account how her ladies in waiting, they wept because they were so uh, heartbroken for her. And it was Anne Boleyn actually who consoled them, saying that, you know, she would have another child soon. And, you know, the most heartbreaking thing about it was that she never had another baby because she was obviously executed in May 1536. But I feel like it gives us a little bit of a window into her relationships with other women because we tend to think I think and Annie's tend to be portrayed as this you know kind of a jealous maybe bitter as we've said before because she was jealous you know but she had genuine friendships with the women of her household and I think she would have been very very surprised to know that some women perhaps testified against her or that Cromwell would want to portray portray her her household as, you know, the ladies in waiting, you know, who would step forward with the damning accusations. Because, you know, Cromwell would obviously want to uh, give credence to the charges he was preparing against Anne. So if he said that her ladies in waiting stepped forward with the damning accusations and that makes Anne look really bad yeah. and make, you know, her ladies look you know, like, oh, we couldn't hide this anymore, so we had to say something. So yes, that's very interesting to think about when you shift the perspective and look at her story, maybe going backward. Yes, it's such a fascinating, fascinating time, isn't it? And you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier when you were talking about one of the ladies that they went then on to serve in Jane Seymour's household. This was, of course, very common, another common thing that occurred to go from one household to the next. So did many of these women that served Anne then go on to serve her, her successor, Jane Seymour? Yes, a lot of them, a lot of them almost all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to me, the most uh, interesting thing about it is that when Anne Boleyn's household was disbanded, these women were not sent home, but th mm. this shadow household kind of awaited the new mistress. And it was a, such a fast, smooth transition. But some women didn't go on to Jane's service. So for example, we have Mary Shelton who left court, whether of her own volition or whether maybe Jane didn't want to have her in her household. Because, you know, Mary Shelton, she, she She's not only lost the royal mistress that she served, but also Henry Norris, her, yes. her fiancé, so he was beheaded. So that was very tough for her too. And Mary Howard, she didn't uh, serve Jane. We may assume it was because her husband, Henry Fitzroy, died in July of 1536. So she was grieving not only for Anne, but also for her husband. But other women, they went on because, you know, they didn't have any other choice. 
what choice did they have? You know, the, the career of maid of honor or lady in waiting was the only thing that these women had, you know, as career path. So they were, were not really in a position to just switch the royal mistress because there was no other royal mistress. So, for example, Anne Boleyn's uh, very close friend, Marjorie Horseman, she goes on to become Jane's uh, servant and she marries in January of 1537. And she and her husband, Michael Lister, they become keepers of the queen's jewels and money so that was a very prestigious post to have that in their custody also marjorie appeared as a recipient of gifts from jane though i think that i think that was not necessarily because she betrayed anne but because just marjorie perhaps was this very gentle uh, friendly person who whom you would like to have around very trustworthy perhaps also jane Boleyn. No, Anne Boleyn's sister-in-law, she also was in Jane Seymour's new household. She would, you know, again, it's sometimes thought that she betrayed Anne, which is not, you know, not the case. That myth is, a lot of, has, a lot of work has been done to dispel that myth. It's still hard Jane. to extinguish that one, isn't it? It keeps popping up continuously. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know what, that's, that's really crazy when you think about it, because there is no evidence no. that no. she betrayed them. And she, she, her, the myth is so huge that it overshadows yes. the, the woman who was said to have been Anne Boleyn's first accuser, so Countess of Worcester. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting to me. Um, the Countess of Worcester is almost like she's not playing a role in Anne's downfall whatsoever. <laughs> but just in general terms, I think that the women didn't have any choice. They, they had to do what they had to do. I think they, you know, just serving another queen, moving on not talking a lot about it that must have been a very tense situation you know because Absolutely. the queen was just executed so but i think they didn't know what anvilin's story would end like because we know we have the benefit of hindsight so to us it's always the case when anvilin would be executed and we judge maybe these people like, you know, judging Jane Seymour for being the king's mistress at the time when Anne was imprisoned. But I think that because it was unprecedented to execute the queen, people just couldn't expect that that was what would happen. And, uh, you know, imagine the, the queen is executed and Jane Seymour is the new queen. So imagine being Jane Seymour at that situation in that situation i think it was horrible and jane was also you know she served anne as maid of honor so she it's it's not like these women were strangers to her uh, they were her colleagues so that must have been so awkward <laughs> yes i think oh, you're right I, I really can't imagine it really gives me kind of goosebumps when i think about it because i mean most of ambulance ladies in waiting they went on to become jane's servants so she was colleague with those women. They were her maybe friends, maybe just serving, you know. And then the next day, Jane is queen. So what do you know? <laughs> That's crazy. But but you know, I think I think like her position was even more insecure than Anne's because she really had to get pregnant fast and with a boy. Also, you know, the Countess of Worcester, of whom we spoke earlier, she also went on to serve Jane. Um, and also, there's this interesting letter that she wrote to Cromwell because towards the end of her life. Anne Boleyn lent some money to the Countess. It was 100 pounds, which is a huge amount of money for that period. And what's interesting about it is that the husband of the Countess didn't know mm. that she borrowed the money and she didn't know what she he didn't know what she spent those the money on. We also don't know what she spent uh, on. Uh, but she wrote to Cromwell that that Anne would have been a good mistress to her had she been alive, which is a little bit you know strange when you think about it. 
because she was said to have been her first accuser. But I think my view is that these women, if they testify, they, they just testified whatever came to their minds without, you know, having this malicious intent. And Cromwell, you know, he had to just give color and texture to his accusations. So if he said that ladies in waiting accused her, then, you know, it's, it's, it gains credibility instantly, but they didn't have any choice. So. Of course. And I think the fact that we have no ladies that are arrested alongside her is is very, very strong evidence that they weren't arrested because there was no crime. But it is it's so, so interesting. And thank you so much. It was so, so interesting to hear about all the ladies in waiting and the duties and the role. So before I can let you go, though, Sylvia, I have to um, play our little game of 10 to go. So 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So the okay. first one is, uh, the, what was the last book that you either bought or read? So right now I'm reading Nathan Amin's uh, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders. Oh, yes. uh, that's very interesting. I wanted to read this book for a long time. So now when I'm in between projects, I finally have time to yes. delve into it. <laughs> Wonderful. So that's, that's interesting. Yes. Oh, I have a bunch of unread books on, <laughs> on my Kindle because I usually buy ebooks. But with this one, I bought a physical copy because I like to buy a physical copy from time to time, <laughs> although I'm running out of shelf space the next book i'm going to read i know um is catherine warner's sex and sexuality in medieval england that's very interesting yes. uh, i have pre-ordered a bunch of books too including yours oh, <laughs> so, thank you <laughs> lots of books coming <laughs> there's lots of there's no and every time i do an interview i end up adding more books to my list so. oh yes <laughs> <laughs> so what is a, a favorite historic site or a house that you really love visiting so when it comes to the Tudors, I really love Hampton Court Palace. Oh, I think it's such a time capsule. So whenever I'm in the UK, I always visit Hampton Court Palace. There will never be a day that I will not visit. <laughs> because it just gives me this sense of being there and seeing, you know, within my imagination, of course, you know, these people, you know, yeah. Anne Boleyn, Henry D, Jane Seymour. So to me, Hampton Court is really a time capsule and I love it. I love that place. Yeah, me too. I'm totally the same as you. I go every time I'm there. <laughs> so yeah. when you were a child, Sylvia, what, what did you dream of becoming when you were older? Um, believe it or not, but I was dreaming of being a writer. So <laughs> oh, that's good, isn't it? So and, you became, uh, your dream came true. Yes. And my teachers usually, you know, just they tell me, told me that you should be a writer. But as a child, you don't really have that clear idea. You know, you don't know that that's a viable career path or you don't know what are you going to be writing about. But I know that I was writing and, you know, just in my journals, whatever. I was writing soap opera episodes. Oh, my God. All sorts of things. So, uh, you know, with the tutors having something to write about, you know, that's, that's very exciting. So I'm, I'm happy that that I that I'm a writer that you know the the, the child Sylvia would have been very yes. proud I think <laughs> that's lovely that's really lovely and what would be an ideal Sunday morning for you well you know because I have small children so during Sundays we, we it's it's a family day so we lovely. go out to the park um, when it's you know a, a nice weather for it just a family day we hang out together uh, go out somewhere just having fun times together that sounds lovely. That sounds perfect. So what about a dream vacation destination? Somewhere you've always really wanted to go, maybe you haven't visited yet, or you have perhaps? For me, a perfect vacation is always when it 
it's connected to history. So it would be perfect if it's connected to the Tudor history because, you know, I live in Slovenia. So for me to plan vacation, I would plan, you know, we go to, to the UK to, to visit. But with small children, it's not, not that easy to plan those yeah. things. But I'm hoping that soon, maybe next year, we will start planning. Also, um, I would like to visit Hawaii because I've never <laughs> been there and it's such a beautiful place. So... Hawaii, I would say. <laughs> yes, it is beautiful, and the people are so beautiful and so friendly. It's, oh, a, it's a lovely, there. lovely place. Oh. <laughs> so keep it, keep it on your list. Keep it on your list. Okay. <laughs> so what was what's a a film, either like a period film that you've really enjoyed, or even a series that you've watched? It doesn't have to be a period film, but <laughs> that you've watched recently. Mm-hmm. Oh, recently. Well, one of my all-time favorite period movies would be the anonymous about you know William Shakespeare not being William Shakespeare <laughs> yes. you know I know it's horribly inaccurate I know it's horribly inaccurate and I I, I don't really believe that the Earl of Oxford was <laughs> you know writing Shakespeare's plays but it was it's such a beautiful well-made movie it's so beautiful you know the sets are beautiful the costumes the actors are excellent so i would always recommend that just because you can immerse yourself in that period so yeah and the period piece that i've been watching recently uh well it's not really period piece it's a fantasy it's house of the dragon oh yes me too (laughs) (laughs) it was you know it's so well made and and I feel like I, I'm watching like a medieval yeah. drama. So uh, that was very nice. That was something I watched recently. <laughs> yes, I, I actually have been watching the same and, and quite oh, enjoying it. Great. I am enjoying it, which is good. And interesting that yeah. you mentioned Anonymous on my Patreon. I do a film review with the wonderful, oh. my, my lovely buddy, Dr. Owen Emerson. Mm-hmm. And we're thinking that that might actually be the next film oh. we review because we do thought, because it. it is beautifully made. <laughs> So, oh, it's I, so beautiful. I think that'll be the next one. And now that you've said it, it must be a sign from the universe. That that's must the one. Be a sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Sylvia, do you have any pets? Oh, no, I don't have any pets. No pets. Sadly, no. My children are my pets right Your now. Children. They're enough work, aren't they? Don't worry. <laughs> oh, they're enough work. But, you know, uh, my daughter is a massive fan of animals. And oh. I'm sure that at some point in our lives, we are going to get either a cat or a dog but we did we don't really want any pets now because you know children are small and it's enough you know work and also when my daughter will be a bit bigger when she will you know grasp what a duty is then yes yeah then maybe makes sense (laughs) makes sense and if you could give your your teenage self a piece of advice what would you what would you say to yourself if you could do that I would say believe in yourself believe in yourself that's it yeah it's simple and it's good isn't it it's always good advice all right and the very last thing very last thing and then I'll let you get on with your day is the Tudor takeaway so I do ask all my guests for a takeaway so a little suggestion of something for our listeners to explore after the episode so Mm -hmm. do you have a Tudor takeaway for us well, yes, because I, I live in Slovenia, so I don't I can't always go to the archives when I want to. Yes. But it's very nice when these things like manuscripts are digitized. So uh, the Brit- British Library, you know, they have this digitized manuscript section on their website and you have all sorts of things there, illuminated manuscripts, prayer books. Uh, there are some of the Tudor manuscripts as well. Yeah, there, there's some um, this ambulance prayer book that belonged to her. And I often just leaf through those beautiful 
illuminated manuscript because well first of all i can do it at home second of all you know i'm not touching it so i'm not damaging it <laughs> um and it's just you know gives me this idea of being connected to the past and just you know beautiful way of spending your time if you have you know spare some minutes so uh, it's on the british library's website so www.bl.uk and then you go to the catalogs and collections digital collections yes and you can spend hours browsing i warn you oh, i warn you everyone listening like i've done that before that hole, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well i'll put it, a link to to that on our show notes that's a wonderful suggestion and sylvia it's been so lovely talking to you today thank you so much for talking to you with us thank you so much natalie for inviting me it was so much fun well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.